Colossians. Chapter 1. I'll start in verse 9 to remind you of the context. And I'll read all the way through verse 18 of Colossians 1. Listen carefully and reverently. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For By him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might have come to have first place in everything. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would profit uh, this time of my preaching. Uh, May it be your message, Lord Jesus, that we hear. Uh, Would you please... Work in our hearts, Lord. We all have different needs. And, uh, Lord, you can use most any portion of your scriptures to address needs that we have, even though they differ. Would you please use this portion of scripture in this way? Would you grant me unction? And would you honor yourself in this time? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, have you ever um, looked at something that filled you with such wonder and awe that you couldn't take your eyes off the thing you were looking at? I'll give you a couple examples. Maybe you've been out to the Rocky Mountains uh, before. Some of you might have, and maybe you saw a particularly large mountain. Uh, There's one called Pikes Peak in Colorado that a lot of people are used to seeing uh, if you go to Colorado. It's a huge mountain, much bigger than the mountains around it. Um, Perhaps you saw Pikes Peak. You might have seen something, or seen pictures of it at least. Perhaps you've been to the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon is this enormous hole in the ground, if you haven't been there, that's, I believe, a mile deep almost in places. It's just hard to believe it can be that big, but it is. And it's it spans hundreds of miles, the Grand Canyon does. It's something that many people, including myself, when you see it, you just you kind of go, I can't believe I'm seeing this. It's just so awesome. Some of you have been to the Ark Encounter recently. That boat's pretty big, I hear. <laughs> And uh, if you haven't been there, seen pictures of it, that could be awe-inspiring and cause you to go, wow. Because it supposedly is the same dimensions as the original ark that Noah built. Whatever it is, or if you've never seen something that caused you to stare at it because it was so wonderful, try to imagine it if you can. Well, Paul is doing something here in this passage that we're looking at, particularly verses 15 through 18 of this chapter, Paul is doing this here himself. He is in awe and wonder as he contemplates in his mind 
he's looking at, if you will, in his mind, God the Son, Jesus. And he is just stunned at what he's seeing. Now, he's not seeing with his eyeballs, but in his mind, he's seeing who Jesus is and contemplating who Jesus is, and it's just almost overwhelming to him as he writes about the Lord Jesus, who is now enthroned in heaven. And so, as we go through this, these few verses here in the next uh, little bit, think about how this description of Jesus inspires or should inspire awe in your heart and wonder in your heart at how wonderful Jesus is, how awesome and great Jesus is, how magnificent he is, and that he is yours if you are a Christian. He belongs to you and you belong to him and how we should respond in light of that. Paul's prayer that I started reading in verse 9 and concluded there in verse 14, essentially. Paul's prayer for the spiritual well-being of the believers in Colossae is followed by this passage that is our passage for today. And it is one of the greatest hymns of praise of Christ uh, in the entire New Testament. There are other places in the New Testament theologians have described this as a hymn or a paean of praise to Christ. And there, there are a few others in other places in the book of Hebrews. Uh, there's some, some other, one or two others in Paul's writings elsewhere. But this is one of those places where it's, uh, it's actually, it may have actually been borrowed by Paul and it had already been composed and he may have inserted it into his letter here. Um, uh, and put the, uh, put the words, as it were, on his own lips or in his own pen, I should say. Uh, or whatever he used to write this. But the point is, it's a, it's a marvelous uh, expression of wonder at who Jesus, the Son of God, is and what he has done. Now, to understand why the Apostle Paul launches into this poem extolling the incarnate Son of God uh, so early in this letter uh, that he writes... In order to understand why he does this, we need to remember one of the foremost reasons why Paul was writing. It wasn't the only reason, but writing to his Colossian readers uh, this letter. And that was in an effort to inoculate them, if I can use that word, against false teaching that was being peddled by certain heretics claiming to be Christians, but who were nothing at all. Uh, There was nothing at all that was Christian about them, but they were undoubtedly claiming to be Christians with a new revelation, new insights that Paul and other true apostles didn't have and that they were urging the Colossian believers to buy into. The heresy, we can get, uh, glean this from uh, reading what Paul writes in response, the heresy that these uh, false teachers were peddling apparently contained, or almost certainly contained, uh, and combined rather elements of Greek speculation Platonic Greek speculation, Jewish legalism, and I'm not talking about biblical um, law legislation, but uh, perversions of it, uh, which occasionally uh, borrowed from the scriptures but then twisted them. Uh, And also it combined elements, too, of Eastern mysticism, Oriental mysticism. It was the hodgepodge, is what it appears to have been, of uh, unbiblical and false uh, things, religious concepts, I guess we can put it that way. Among other errors that this heresy included, and this is important for why Paul probably uh, says what he says here, is it included a belief that matter and anything composed of matter is inferior in some way to, the, to spiritual things that material things are inferior to spiritual things. And in this way, it resembled later Gnosticism. It is sometimes called proto-Gnosticism. But it resembled a later Gnosticism, um, maybe not identically, but similarly, which taught that matter is the source of all evil uh, and spirit is the source of all good. That was later Gnosticism, which may not have been full-blown here, and that may have, they may not have gone that far uh, these false teachers uh, in Colossae, but it, it was tending in that direction. At the very least, matter is, is to be downplayed and is kind of less than good or it's inferior to the spiritual 
in us and in the world around us, is what they would say. And uh, such thinking about the material world is not only diametrically opposed to the uh, scriptural teaching on creation, uh, remember, it was good, it was very good, in fact, um, it, it, uh, it was contrary to that very prominent teaching in Genesis, uh, in Genesis, but it was also a direct threat uh, to the Bible's teaching about the person and work of God the Son, Jesus, the Christ, who took to himself what? A true material body and a reasonable soul, as the Confession puts it, or the Catechism puts it, and he did this in order to rescue He had to be the God-man in order to rescue uh, sinners like ourselves from the judgment of God. He had to be matter, you see. He had to partake of our humanity. We are material. Well, we are are body and spirit, uh, and he partook of both in his person, but uh, includes the material body. So Paul almost certainly is including this uh, hymn or uh, this poem, or whatever you want to call it, extolling the person and work of the Divine Son, in order to remind the believers in Colossae of who the biblical Christ is, and to prevent them from thinking about him in a heretical way. The Holy Spirit, Christ himself, placed this letter to the Colossians in our Bible because he wishes to do the same for us, that we might have a right understanding rather than a false or twisted one of who Jesus is. Which brings me to our points. They are short points. There are four of them, but they are short. It's actually a little bit shorter lengthwise on my notes than uh, sermons normally are. But they are as follows. First, the greatness or wonder of the incarnate Son is confirmed by the fact that he is the image of the invisible God. Secondly, it is also confirmed by the fact that he is the firstborn of all creation. Thirdly, it is also confirmed by the fact that he is the head of the church. And finally, it is confirmed by the fact that he is the firstborn from the dead. And we'll look at each of those points now. First, the greatness and wonder of the incarnate Son is confirmed by the fact that he is the image of the invisible God. Adam, the first Adam in the garden, he was made in the image of God, Adam was, as are all of those who are descended from him. We are made in the image of God, were made in the image of God, are made in the image of God. And even in, even in sinners, uh, where the image of God has been uh, badly damaged or uh, shattered, if you will, it is not uh, completely absent and is being reassembled, as it were, uh, in the believer. Um, so Adam was made in the image of God, but Jesus, the God-man, was not made in the image of God. He is the image of God, you see. The image of God is supremely displayed in him in all eternity, in fact. Louis Burkhoff writes, By referring to Jesus as the image of the invisible God, Paul is asserting that Jesus Christ is the invisible God made visible. That in Jesus Christ, the glory of God, indeed God himself, becomes manifest. You see, in Jesus, in Christ, the God-man, the nature, the being, the essence of divinity, of God himself, was and is perfectly set forth and revealed to the creation, to us. He is that revealer of divinity to Uh, all of his rational creatures. Jesus himself said, he who has seen me has seen the Father, right? The writer of the Hebrews tells us that the Son is the radiance of God's glory 
and the exact representation of his nature, or that can be translated essence or being. He's the exact representation or stamp, that word can be translated, of his nature, his being, his essence. The Son is. But as the last Adam, the God-man, Jesus Christ has not only revealed the triune God's glory to his creation, to you and to me, but by means of his atoning work on our behalf, he has also purchased the restoration of the image of God, which is the reflection of God's glory, in us. He has purchased that uh, restoration in us. And I made that point a few moments ago, uh, that uh, we are being reassembled. The image of God is being reassembled in the believer and restored in the believer. And Jesus did this. And he was able to do this precisely because he, the last Adam, our substitute, was and is the image of the invisible God himself. That's how he can restore it in you and me. The reflection of his glory in you and me and his attributes, the communicable, excuse me, the communicable attributes, the ones that can be shared with uh, that God has that can be shared with humanity as opposed to the incommunicable attributes. So what this means, folks, is your sanctification, your growth in holiness, your ultimate glorification, perfection in heaven, all of that um, transformation within you that is taking place now and will until the day you go home to be with the Lord is guaranteed by the fact that your covenant representative in the covenant of grace is the image of the invisible God who did the work that he did in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So the wonder of Jesus is confirmed by the fact that he is the image of the invisible God. It is also confirmed by the fact that he is, as Paul says in verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Paul's description of Christ as the firstborn does not refer to the Son's origin. It doesn't refer to the origin of the Son. The God-man, Jesus, cannot originate at any place or at any point in time because he's the second person of the eternally self-existent God. He can't originate, you see. That implies, requires a beginning. He has no such thing. No, this term firstborn applied to the Son speaks of his position, his dignity, his status. You see, the Apostle is using the term firstborn in a Hebraic way uh, to refer to the superior rank, privilege, and honor that belonged to the firstborn son of a typical Jewish family in ancient times. We talked about this somewhat in in, uh, Sunday school, actually. But that's what what he means by firstborn. He's not talking about origins, but of, of, of dignity and status and rank. So when Paul applies the title, firstborn of all creation, to God the Son, he means that the Son holds the place of highest dignity and honor and rank in all of creation. in all of the universe, in both earth and heaven. And he possesses, the exalted God-man, enthroned God-man, possesses this exalted status and rank, for among other reasons, because all things were created by him and for him. Verse 16. For by him all things were created, 
both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. The Son, you see, is the creator of everything that exists outside of himself, outside of God. Everything that exists. This includes matter, this includes space, and it includes time. Time is a creation of God, designed, given so that we can function as creatures. We must, we're time and space bound uh, creatures. But he is not. And so he has created everything that is. And he is the creator of all precisely because the Son is God the Son. Of course, the other two persons of the Godhead, they are also the creator, and the scriptures speaks in different places of the Father creating and of the Spirit creating. Genesis 1, for example. But Jesus is the creator. The Son is the creator. Everything that exists was created by him, but it was also created for him. F.F. F. Bruce, a well-known reform commentator, says this about the Son. He was there when creation's work began, and it was for him as well as through him it was completed. As Hebrews puts it, he is the divinely appointed heir of all things. He's the inheritor of all things. The one uh, for whom they have been created. Jesus is. The Son incarnate. There's yet another reason why the resurrected and ascended God-man holds the place of highest dignity and honor and rank in all of creation. Not only because he was, it was created by him and for him, but also because he is before the creation. He is before all things, verse 17 says. This means that he existed before anything else existed. Including matter, space, time. He was there before any of those things existed. I use the word before. That's a time, that's a time loaded word. It's, it really, you can't talk like that in some sense about God, but we have to because that's all we understand. But he was, he was before all things because, again, he's God. And God exists outside of the dimension of time. His existence is in no sense dependent upon time or defined by it. Same with space. It's irrelevant to him. Oh, he can work in it, but it, it in no way defines him or um, is he dependent upon time. And so he is as the second person of the self-existent God, he, the Son, is before all things. And that's another reason um, why he possesses this exalted status that he does. And then finally, we are told by Paul that in the Son, in him, all things hold together. So not only is he before the creation, not only did he create the creation, not only was the creation for him, but the creation holds together because of him. He is, if you will, the cosmic glue. Maybe I should say the divine glue. That's probably better, rather than comparing him to the cosmos. He's the, he's the divine glue that holds everything that exists together. And by the way, he doesn't do this with some sort of pressure that he's applying on things, if you will, that he's continually exerting on things to prevent them from atomizing. It's not like that. No, he does this, holds all things together by the force of his own will. He wills it, and it is. You see. He wills that everything holds together that is together. That includes you and me. Includes your heart, your eyes, your bones, 
mind. Otherwise, if he didn't will us to remain who we are, we would atomize. Indeed, we would cease to exist. You continue to hold together only because your divine Lord and Savior continues to will it. And by the way, he will for eternity. So it's okay. You don't have to worry about vaporizing. So that's the second uh, confirmation of his greatness and the wonder and awe uh, that is the incarnate Son, is the fact that he is the firstborn of all creation. But Paul also says there's another reason um, to, that confirms his greatness, his uh, magnificence, if you will, his glory, and that is that he's the head of the church. He's the head of the church. Head speaks of the authority and power that Christ possesses and wields. As head, he is, if you will, at the head. Meaning that there is no authority above him. He governs the body of which he is the head, just as the head of a man's body governs the body to which it is attached. Or a woman's, or a child's. This governs the rest of us. Jesus governs that body of which he is the head. He is also, because he's the head, he is the body's animator and life source. Of course, the body that we're talking about here, of which Jesus is the head, is the church. That is, that communion of those who are in covenant with God through Christ. That would include the church on earth at present, the church in heaven at present. That would include the church across the ages, beginning with Adam and Eve. That would in, uh, So the church of the last 6,000 years. It includes the visible church, and the invisible church. Maybe I should have said the visible, the invisible church and the visible church. The whole thing you see, the whole organism which is the church, is his. To do with what he wants. And what does he want to do with the church? He wants to magnify his boundless love and grace and forgiveness and mercy through through his dealings with her and those who are within her. That's you. He wants to show forth the glory of his love and his grace. And his forgiveness. A couple of implications of Jesus' headship over the church. First of all, as I already indicated, he is the source of all spiritual life in the church, whether individual life or corporate life. He is the source. Remember, he withdrew his lampstand from the churches uh, of Asia Minor, some of the churches of Asia Minor. He withdrew his life. The life that he provided, they were dead already. Or he, yeah, he took it in their deadness, if you will. He maintains life. This means that you remain spiritually alive if you're a Christian. You remain spiritually alive and don't apostatize after having been born again because he keeps you alive. You persevere because he makes you persevere. A little gratitude might be in order, don't you think, from all of us? That we don't all of a sudden deny Christ and go, I'm going to live like a heathen. Because I don't believe anything about that anymore. It's he who prevents us from falling off that cliff which we would otherwise all fall off of. 
And the second implication of the fact that Jesus is head over the church is whatever authority is exercised within the church is ultimately, I'm talking about the true church now, is true churches. It's ultimately his authority. Authority he has chosen to delegate to his uh, officers or the officers of the church uh, of any given congregation, the elders and the deacons. It is his authority that they exercise, and this, of course, there's an assumption that I'm making as I say that, only when they exercise it legitimately. And we don't always. Uh, Sadly, the church is full of examples of that in the past and in the present as well. I just read of one this week that nearly lost my mind when I read something that was going on in the PCA. At any rate, it is Christ's authority when proper authority is being wielded in the church. We officers, there are only two of us here today, but we officers must never allow this truth that the authority that we exercise is from Christ delegated to us. We must never allow that truth to go to our heads. Indeed, what that truth should do to us is it should greatly humble the officers of the church, and make us fearful of ever abusing our authority. But also, the truth of this should cause those of you whom Christ has providentially placed under our spiritual care or some future uh, session, if you are not here for the rest of your life, it should cause you to remember that the authority that is wielded by your under-shepherds is ultimately Jesus' authority to the degree that it's properly wielded. It's not ultimately ours. It's sobering for all of us. Fourth, and finally, the greatness and wonder of the incarnate Son is confirmed not only by the fact that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and the head of the church, but the fact that he is the firstborn from the dead. From the dead. Verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And those two statements basically go together. So that he himself might come to have First place in everything. That's why I speak of the preeminence, the the um, the wonder of Christ, and the preeminence of Christ uh, in this passage, because that's the point. You see, he is has the first place in everything because of these truths, among which is the fact that he is the firstborn from the dead. Here, Paul seems to be using, and almost certainly I think is using, the term firstborn to imply temporal priority or coming firstness, if I can put it that way. Christ was the first man in history to both rise from the dead and receive a glorified body, resurrection body. He was the first. Some others were raised, you're right, uh, Lazarus and so on. But he was the first to both rise from the dead and receive the glorified, a glorified resurrection body. Why is his resurrection from the dead so important? That he, if you will, uh, uh, was at the head of the head of the the resurrected. Well in addition to the fact that his resurrection from the dead bodily served as the evidence of the Father's acceptance of and pleasure with Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf and mine, in addition to that fact that it's the evidence of, uh, uh, and also his own vindication, as well as the Father's acceptance of what he did, his bodily resurrection from the dead also was a harbinger of the great resurrection harvest of God's people. 
at the end of the ages. His resurrection from the dead not only anticipates your bodily resurrection from the dead should you die. Let's pray that Jesus comes this week. It's not only anticipates your bodily resurrection from the dead, but more than this, Jesus' resurrection from the dead also guarantees your bodily resurrection from the dead. The separation of the body and the soul uh, of a human being is unnatural. It is not a blessed state or the most blessed state. Body and soul belong together. And when we die bodily, we live spiritually, but we die bodily. Our spirit immediately goes to glory, be with the Lord. But that's that's not the best situation. Don't get me wrong, it's a good situation. But it's not the best situation. It's not the most blessed of states. The most blessed of states is when a, a person's body and soul are together with God for all eternity. That's the new heavens and the new earth, folks. And Jesus, his resurrection guarantees yours, should you die, your body, I should say, die before he returns in glory. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 refers to Christ as the first fruits, a little bit different term than firstborn, but the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the promissory note, if you will, that guarantees all that comes thereafter. But this is only true for believers. People who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone as the God-man, who alone can save that individual from eternal destruction in hell. You will not experience resurrection life if Jesus returns and you have not trusted him as your Savior and Lord. You will experience resurrection death. Yes, your body will be raised, but it will be raised and reunited with your soul in hell. It's a horrible doctrine. I mean, it's a, it's a, not a horrible doctrine, it's a horrible thing. And it's a scary doctrine, but it needs to be articulated because it's what the Bible teaches. The damned will have their bodies back and their suffering will worsen when that happens. We all deserve it. But those who flee to Christ as their only hope of escaping that and as the Lord whom they wish to be the Lord of their life, uh, the new head of their life rather than themselves, they alone will escape what those who don't flee to Christ will not escape. Flee to Christ not only because of the terrible things that will occur in this life and beyond if you don't, but also because it's true. He's real. He's he's this son of whom these things are true. And he didn't have to come to save sinners. He could have given us all we deserved. He had every right to do that. He came to save sinners. Flee to Christ. Don't be afraid to come to Christ. He will not abuse you. He loves you. He will bless you for all eternity and forgive you of all the ways you've offended him. But you must bow the knee to him and say, Lord, save me and be my Lord. Well, in conclusion, all these four, and there are other things found elsewhere in Scripture, but these four things that Paul mentions here in this section Remind us of how wonderful this Son of God, this Christ, this Messiah is. So I would just conclude by saying this. The next time you are struggling spiritually, 
which may well be this week or maybe even later this hour, I don't know. But the next time you are struggling spiritually and wondering if serving Jesus is worth it, living for Jesus is worth it, remember these things. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He is the head of the church, whom he died for, by the way, and he is the firstborn from the dead for those who are in Christ. He's worth serving and loving and trusting and revering and praising.